Uh, Back to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, continuing our study through John 12 uh, in a kind of a mini-series entitled Potential. You may have gathered this morning that today's topic is about light uh, from our kids uh, coming in and uh, leading us in singing This Little Light of Mine and uh, light mentioned numerous times in the songs that we sang earlier. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the potential of light and, the, and how our potential is experienced in the light. And so as I was thinking about this day, one of my first thoughts went to the opposite side. And I kind of thought, what things, are there things in our world that live up to their greatest potential in darkness? And of course, my first thought went to uh, fungus or, or fungi in the plural and to mushrooms, And some of you are like, aren't they one and the same? Isn't a mushroom a fungus? And technically, you're right. But I kind of like mushrooms. Had some on my salad last night, as a matter of fact. And so I like to think of mushrooms in a separate category from my athlete's foot, you know, as a fungus. And so I kind of break those out. Yeah, fungus and mushrooms, because they, they, you know, a little bit different categories uh, for us there. But even mushrooms need some level of light. But yeah, they, they grow and they expand in darkness. Uh, There are also a couple of plants that German researchers are working on with chemicals. But other than that, you know, most vegetation needs light uh, in order to survive. Well, then I thought about nocturnal animals. You know, we have nocturnal animals that, that, uh, you know, hunt and eat and do all this stuff at night. But my question on that was, is, are they better and live up to their potential more at night because they have to or just because they do? I mean, if, if they were out hunting during the day, doing their thing during the day, would they still eat and would they still be provided for? And th- but they just prefer to hunt and eat and do their stuff at night. Not real sure. Maybe some of you can enlighten me on that. I know some are better equipped. That's what nocturnal means, right? Well, my point in this is that the vast majority of people, those are really about the only things that I could think of that live up to their potential in darkness, but the vast majority of people and animals and plants and all other living things in the world grow toward their full potential in the light. We need light to survive and to live uh, and to do our best in all things. And that's true physically in the physical world we live in in creation, but it's also true spiritually. And in John 12, as we come to this passage this morning, Jesus is wrapping up his public ministry. He's been talking with the crowds and he had just spoken about the fact that he was going to be crucified. He talked about being lifted up and when he's lifted up, he would draw all men to himself, that people would come to him and believe in him for salvation. Uh, And the crowd was a little bit confused when Jesus spoke of his death and being raised up on the cross. And so they asked him to clarify what he was saying, what he was talking about, what he meant by his words. But rather than clarify what he was talking about, Jesus goes on and he gives a final word picture, one last object lesson before slipping away into the crowd from his public ministry. The the latter part of verse 36 says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid themselves, hid himself from them. So Jesus slips out of public view. So what is it he said just prior to going out of and leaving his public ministry? When verse 33, he had talked about being lifted up and it said that he was referring to the kind of death he was going to die. Verse 34 says, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, they thought Jesus was the Son of Man. They thought he was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And they clearly understood from Jesus' words that he was referencing his death. When he talked about being lifted up, they knew he was talking about dying. And they were a little bit confused because they basically say, wait a second, we've been taught that the Messiah won't die, that he'll remain forever. And yet you're telling us that you are going to die by being lifted up. So if you're not the Messiah because you're going to die and the Messiah can't die, then who is he? Who is this son of man that we should be looking for? You see, there are two potential preventers that we commonly experience as we go through life. These are things that limit or stifle our potential in living up to our full potential. One is history. When you have experienced something in a particular way, in a certain format or with a certain methodology that worked for you or that you've enjoyed or you particularly like, you may have a hard time seeing the potential for something to be done in a different way. And history can sometimes morph into tradition. And some traditions can not only stifle potential, but they can aggressively and assertively try and stop us from living up to our potential. And so the people thought the Messiah was going to live forever. That was their history. That was their tradition. That's what they had been taught. So when Jesus talked about dying, they thought something must be amiss because in their minds... If someone dies or if something dies, then it can't live forever. You see the confusion there? Like, oh, Messiah's going to live forever. Jesus said, I'm going to die. They're like, those two can't work together. They didn't see the potential of life after death because they were limited by history and by knowledge. Even though, and I think about this, that that's what their tradition had taught them, but Jesus had already demonstrated on a number of occasions that he had the power of life over and life after death because he had resurrected some people from the dead. You remember that? So they should have seen that and recognized that, well, with Jesus, you don't have to necessarily stay permanently dead because he's resurrected these people from the dead. And then beyond that, we also understand and see that Jesus was going to once again demonstrate within the next few days that he, through his own resurrection, had the power of life over death. But because of their history, uh, their tradition, what they had been taught, they couldn't see and grasp that there was an alternate reality, a different way that Jesus was presenting their truth. We see the other potential preventer is knowledge, is knowledge. You know, as mankind, as human beings, we think we know pretty much everything, right? Or we at least think that we know best. I mean, we study and we research and we can explain a whole lot of things. And one of the dangers is when we get to a certain level of accomplishment or of achievement, the temptation for us is just to sit back and to rest and let our, uh, our processes and our methodologies and let these things work for us. And uh, we just, we're, we're comfortable in, hey, look at what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. We're good. And we can sit and rest in that rather than seeing the potential for something else, for a way to improve or to do something a little bit differently. And, you know, I, I'm for one, I'm glad that people don't just accomplish something and go, that's pretty good. You know, that, that's it. We'll live that way forever. Thinking about a couple of things that we experience in life. Would you rather lug around a suitcase, have to pick it up and move it everywhere you go, or tug one on wheels? 
Now you tell me why it took us so long to ever put wheels on a suitcase. Y'all remember lugging suitcases around, ha- having to do it yeah, as you traveled? I, mean, I remember that as a kid, and finally we got our first wheeled suitcase, and I was like, where have you been all of my life? I mean, that thing was great. The same thing with trash cans. Anybody ever have to lug a trash can to the curb without wheels? I mean, we got the trash cans, the big... My nine-year-old daughter, one of her tasks around our house is wheeling the big, massive recycle bin out to the curb. She never has a problem. Pulls it over, walks it right out there. I'm like, man, where was that when I was a kid? You know, we had a long driveway. When it got cold and rainy and snowy and stuff, it didn't matter. I was lugging that trash can down there. Didn't have wheels. And think about the remote control. Aren't you glad somebody thought beyond just having children. I was my dad's remote control. Hey, go see what's on channel 13, Curtis. Okay. Click, click, you know. Praise the Lord for the remote control that somebody had the vision to see these things. And can I get an amen for the drive-through window? And you know what they've got now? Pre-made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches without the crust on it. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, all these food battles with our kids. People saw the potential. Here's something let's take and let's do something a little bit differently. They could see it. There was a vision beyond what existed. Well, the crowds couldn't grasp what Jesus was saying because it didn't match their history. It didn't match their knowledge. But you know what? If they had studied their scriptures and allowed God to teach them his truth, they would have seen it because it was in the scriptures. And I noted some references for you, some prophecies about the Messiah who would suffer and who would die, but the people didn't understand. They didn't grasp it because they didn't want to see and understand God's truth. They were locked in to the way they thought it should be or the way that they wanted it to be. But the bottom line is they didn't get it. So instead of trying to clear it up, Jesus doesn't go back and re-explain it. He simply gives them one last truth about how we experience the full potential in our lives that only Jesus Christ can bring. Look at what he says in verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And with that, he hid himself and ended his public appearances. So Jesus' last word picture, his last call to the crowds and to us was a call to walk in his light. And at this point, he was going to be with them just a, just a few more hours, a couple of more days. But more than just walking in his light while it was available, he called people to believe in him as the light of the world. And as a result of believing in him, they could become sons or daughters of the light and become light bearers, taking his light to the world. Now, I want to pose a question uh, to us here in just a moment related to the power and the potential of Christ in our lives as the light uh, of our life and in the light of the world. But as we think about living up to our potential in Christ, you must understand that I want to kind of walk through a couple of parallels and some ideas here for us spiritually as Jesus uses this analogy, this word picture about light. And the first thing that we must always understand is that light overcomes darkness. Light overcomes darkness always. 
It is an irrefutable law that no amount of darkness, no matter how dark, no matter how much light is cast away and set aside, when a light begins to shine, light repels darkness. Darkness itself cannot extinguish a light, any light, regardless of how small or faint that light may be. And Jesus called the crowds to come and to walk in his light and then to receive his light so that they would have a light in the darkness. So the question I wanted to kind of pose to us this morning is this. When is it the darkest? When is it the darkest? Just before the dawn. I knew you were going to say that. It's a Hallmark card, all right? We say it's always darkest just before the dawn. We're trying to tell somebody, we know you're having a tough time. We know it's difficult. We know you're going through this hard stuff. It's always dark just before the dawn. It's going to get light, and you're going to be able to see, and all these troubles and these trials are going to be behind you. Well, put it on the Hallmark card, all right? Because it's, it, it's not the reality. It is darkest right after a light goes out. It's darkest right after a light goes out goes out. Yeah, they're getting ready here, so, so just hang on. We're, we're, we've got a little... You can't have a, a illustration or a sermon about light without a candle, right? It's darkest right after light goes out. Think about it. I don't know about you guys. We don't have uh, lamps next to our bed. We just have the bedroom light. So Shelly are, we always turn the light off, and when you turn the light off, we have to then fumble, kind of walk through the darkness like this to find the edge of the bed to be able to get through. And you know to swing your arms sideways, right? You know why to do that. Because if you hold your arms like this, you can walk into an open door that's uh, sticking out in front of you as I did one day, all right? So I learned the sweeping motion so you make sure you're not missing anything. I find the edge of the bed, move my way around, and I can go. It's darkest right after why this is the case. Because when it's light, our pupils constrict and they limit the amount of light that comes in. And so when you turn the light off, your eyes are like, hey, now what are we going to do? And so we have to fumble around in the darkness. Now, contrast that with this. Let's say, hypothetically, someone awakens at 3 a.m. for the first of several potty breaks through the night. Not that I'm that person as I get closer to the age of 40, but let's just say hypothetically it happens to people, all right? Now, this hypothetical person can wake up in the middle of the night, roll out of bed, walk out of the bedroom, down the hallway, to the bathroom, back to the bedroom, half asleep, eyes barely open, and not have any problems whatsoever. Why is that? Because as this hypothetical individual wakes up, now in the bedroom, an alarm clock, ambient light from the, from the windows, goatee trimmers and electric toothbrushes in the bathroom provide enough light for this hypothetical person to be able to walk half asleep in and out to the bathroom and back without bumping into anything because it gives you enough light to be able to see the large objects. It doesn't give you enough light to miss the finer details of a Lego or a Hot Wheels car, which would lead to disciplined children the next day. But nonetheless, you see the big objects and we're able to do that. Now, why is that? When the light goes off, we can't see. But when, it's, when we've been in the darkness, then we can see. Well, we know, again, physiologically, our pupils are open. And they allow uh, these little faint sources, these small sources of light to be sufficient for us to walk through and see big objects. And particularly if we're familiar with an area. Now, here's one of the parallels to this spiritually for us. Unfortunately, as people as believers sometimes, but particularly an unbelieving world, 
we can sometimes grow pretty comfortable in the darkness. We manage to get by and we do okay in the darkness. And unfortunately, the darkness in our lives with sin and with disobedience toward God, we can be functional in that. We can be like a nocturnal animal and we we can get through and do okay without ever realizing the light of Jesus Christ and what that light can bring and what a glorious benefit to having the life, the light in our life can look like. We can grow comfortable in the darkness sometimes, can't we? We can get by, we can function, but Jesus is saying to us, I don't want you to get by, I don't want you to function, I want you to experience my glorious light. Let me show you what my light looks like, let me show you what it can do in your life. I want to tie all this together this morning by by just demonstrating that Jesus called people to walk with him in his light so that they wouldn't be overcome by darkness, that they wouldn't be led astray uh, into the dangers and the temptations and the hardships of this world. So Jesus is basically saying, you're confused about this whole death thing. I'm talking to you about dying and it's not really registering with you up here. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die And it's going to feel like you're overcome by the darkness. You're going to be lost. You're going to be confused. You're not going to understand how I could die. And when the light goes out, you're going to kind of fumble around. You won't know what to do next. But his words and his call to them was, believe in me and you will have my light in your life. And when that light goes out... When my light goes out, you will have my light within you to help guide you through what you're going to face. Now, I didn't mention earlier that one other thing that lives up to its greatest potential in the darkness is actually light. Light lives up to its greatest potential in the darkness. Here, let me, let me demonstrate like this. Here's the, here's the candle illustration for us. Got this candle up here, and I will take and I will light this candle... And it really doesn't add a whole lot to this room, does it? I mean, there's light all around. You know, we're basking in it. This candle, we're like, oh, okay, he lit that up there. It doesn't do a whole lot for us when there's all this other light around. But if you guys can can kill the lights for me up there for just a minute, I don't know if we'll be able to get the screens too. Is there a button for that? But as you see, as it gets darker, and again, we've got the ambient light up here from the screens and all this. It doesn't have as significant an impact. But how many of you have ever taken a, a cave tour? You ever been on one of those cave tours where you go down and they, they get you to that point and they turn? I see the hands waving at you. Yeah, I ask you the question. I can't see your hands. That's right. <laughs> Duh. Uh, you've been on those cave tours. I mean, that, that darkness, the one where you put your hand up and you can't see in front of your face. And you're like, okay, this is quite creepy and eerie. And then they turn the flashlight on or they hit the switch and it comes back on. That's a good thing. Like, whew, man, I'm glad they turned that light on. In the darkness, light lives up to its greatest potential. It gives us its greatest benefit in when it's placed in a dark place. All right, thank you guys. You can go ahead and turn the lights back up for us. It's always darkest right after the light goes out. I want you to think about this experientially for the disciples and the early church. Jesus was crucified. He was resurrected. And then shortly after that, his light goes out again because after his resurrection, he's with the disciples, but he ascends back into heaven where he will remain until he returns uh, to call his children to himself. So there's this darkness because the light of the world is gone. 
And as long as Jesus was with the disciples, they were like, man, this is great. This is good. Before his resurrection, after his resurrection, they could go. They could talk to him. They could speak. He could give them truth. He could demonstrate his power, tell them who he was. It was great as long as Jesus was there because he could see them through every situation that they faced. But when he left, his light went out. He wasn't with them in the flesh. And it would have been easy in that time, in that darkest time for them, for the early church, for the disciples, for the early believers to crumble, to fumble around in the darkness. They could have started debating what to do next. Okay, Jesus is gone. What are we going to do now? And you got five people that have a plan as to what we should do. And they start arguing, no, I think we ought to do this. No, I think we ought to do this. No, I think we ought to do this. You say, well, they're all believers. Surely they wouldn't debate on what to do next, do you? Well, you know, you you determine for yourself. But they didn't do that. They could have started arguing who was the greatest among them. They wouldn't do that, would they? Well, they had done it while Jesus was here. So, you know, you could see the temptation to be able to do that after he was gone. They could have started fragmenting and, and dividing over methodology or interpretations of Jesus' teachings. I mean, all these things could have happened right after Jesus was gone in this darkest time, right after the light is extinguished. But you know what? The early church really didn't struggle in that kind of spiritual darkness. They didn't struggle at all. As a matter of fact, the church, the early church, immediately following Jesus' ascension to heaven was the strongest, most pure, most powerful, and most evangelistic that it has ever been. Think about that. It's darkest right after the light goes out. Jesus is taken away from them, and it was the greatest hour, the greatest season and period for the church. Why is that? Well, the simple answer is that they had believed in Jesus, therefore they were children of the light. And as a result, Jesus' light didn't really go out. It just changed its form. Jesus had been, if you will imagine, a large, huge spotlight. You know, one of these for the movie premieres that shines up into the sky and does this or that you call Batman with. I mean, Jesus was this bright source of light that everyone could see and go, wow, there's the light of the world. But when that light was gone, it didn't just disappear. It just went to a different mode. Now there were a bunch of little bitty lights living in the life of all of these people, these believers who had trusted in him. And those individuals took all of those little lights. And you know what they started doing? They started going house to house, city to city, country to country, telling people the good news about Jesus. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what he's done. Let me tell you about my experience with him. And as they took those little individual mobile lights place to place, sharing about Jesus in the darkness, people believed in him and more and more of these individual lights were lit through belief in Jesus as the light of the world. And I want you to see a couple of important things in the life and practice of these early believers that kept their lights shining brightly. The church was tremendous, had tremendous impact and influence in these early days. And they did a couple of things that kept their lights shining brightly for Christ. Flip over to Acts chapter 2 so we can read a couple of these things that they did. Acts chapter 2 is often referenced as the birth of... Of the early church. And you know, here's the thing about light. When you've got a light source with you, you know, a flashlight, something like that, darkness doesn't give you any problems at all. You know, I've got a, uh, a application on my phone that's a flashlight app on my smartphone. So if it gets dark, 
you know, I just, usually my phone's not too far away, so I grab my phone, three touches, I've got a light right there. Darkness doesn't give me any problems at all. Don't have to let my light, my eyes adjust, fumble around. I just turn on the light. In essence, that's what the early church did. Okay, Jesus is gone, now it's dark, you know what, let's turn on our lights. We believed in him, we have the light within him, we're sons of the light. Okay, here's the light, let's go and do what Jesus has called us to do until the time that he returns. So they did these things, and remember, the church was, was the most pure, most powerful, uh, healthiest that it's ever been in her history. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Peter has preached a message uh, of salvation through Christ, and verse 41 gives us the result. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people, 3,000 new lights were lit that day as they believed in Christ. So the question is, what did these new believers do next? What did the disciples, the early church leaders, what did they lead them and teach them to do to keep their lights shining brightly? Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, this passage gives us a great summation of the things that the people were practicing on a daily, weekly basis. Regularly and consistently, they were doing some things that as a result were keeping their lights shining brightly, which was giving them opportunities to share the good news of Christ. And as a result, people were drawn to the light out of the darkness of their sins. And you know what? That's what happens when people in darkness see a light. When you are in a dark place and you want to find your way to a light source or to, to, to uh, you know, find your flashlight, when you are in a dark place and you see a source of light, you get to that light as quickly as you can. Do you not? I mean, you, when you're in a dark place, you look for a light and you begin to make your way to that. So spiritually, we recognize that when people in darkness of their sins see the light of Jesus Christ shining in believers, people are drawn to that light. And people were drawn to the light through the believers in the early church. And we summarize here at Mount Pleasant the practices we see described here in verses uh, 42 through 47 as what I call four core values. And my goal and my heart is, as pastor is that every believer who attends Mount Pleasant Baptist Church will build these things into his or her life in order to grow in their personal relationship with Christ. As we talk about living up to our potential, these four things help us grow and mature in our knowledge, in our relationship, and our maturity with Christ. The first is that we worship God personally that we worship God personally. It is a growing relationship that we spend time cultivating an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and at the end of that verse it says, and to prayer. The practicing of regular spiritual disciplines is a key fundamental component in you growing in your walk, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Studying God's word and spending time with him in prayer. Those two foundational things, in addition to other spiritual disciplines, help you cultivate a growing personal relationship with Christ. And we try to encourage and foster that, that Bible study and that prayer uh, and encouraging that in our believers through worship on Sunday mornings, through our study uh, of God's Word at the well on Wednesday nights. We have Bible fellowship classes that, that center on studying God's Word uh, and discussing and applying it to our lives and building relationships in those contexts as well. We offer devotional materials, a couple of different devotional materials to encourage people to read their Bible at home each and every day and spend time in prayer to cultivate this growing personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My goal, my desire is that every person with, who comes through any part of the life and the work and the ministry of this church will grow in his or her walk with Christ through the regular practice of spiritual disciplines. The early church gave themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, and they were teaching them the words of Jesus. They were teaching them from Scripture how they could know more of God by Jesus' words and teachings and the Old Testament scripture that have been given to them. And we should give ourselves to those things as well. The second thing that we see that they did was to walk with other believers, is how we phrase it around here. It says that they gave themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. It says they gathered in the temple courts and they gathered in their homes. Fellowship is a biblical word that, that basically means a community, being together with other believers. And I kind of like to summarize it as doing life together. But here's the thing. Biblical fellowship, biblical community is more than just hanging out with people and talking about whatever. You can go to the local community center and hang out with people and just, you know, talk and have good relationships, but not impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Biblical community, biblical fellowship centers on God's word and prayer and relationships with other believers. And as you spend time with other believers and you hear their life and their journey and you begin to sharpen one another, as Scripture teaches, you begin to care for one another and invest in one another's lives, not because you need to, but because you see a need and you want to respond and you want to minister uh, to those other individuals. Which brings us to the third core value is that we work for God's kingdom. We saw several references in here of the people selling their goods and their possessions and giving to those who had need and ministering and caring for one another, opening their homes for people to gather for prayer, for, for study, uh, and for eating meals together. Uh, and as they gathered together in all of these things, they were moved to help one another. You know, some people will argue and say, well, this is a picture of socialism. This is socialism gets its, its roots in Scripture. The people sold their stuff and then they, they used it to help other people. No, it's not at all because these people voluntarily sold what they had. They weren't forced. It wasn't mandated by anyone. These people were moved because of their love for God and they, seeing needs in other people's lives. They were moved voluntarily to sell their possessions and sell their belongings and then to distribute as they saw fit. It wasn't funneled through, you know, a corporate group or an organization. They just took and they said we see a need we sell these things and we want to give in order to help other people and you know what when people see that level of caring and love and concern for other people they cannot help but being drawn to it it is like a fog light burning in the darkness that people say wow I want to be a part 
of that kind of group, that kind of community that loves and cares for one another in that way. People are drawn to it when they see the church working for God's kingdom, meeting needs, caring, and loving one another, but also loving those who are in the world who need to hear the good news of Christ. And the last thing that we see that they were doing is they were witnessing as a way of life. They were sharing about Christ. The apostles were doing signs and wonders. People were speaking of the good news of Christ and what he had done. And the world not only heard their message, they could see through their actions the difference that Jesus had made. And what did it say the result of it was? It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were drawn to the actions, the lifestyle, the witness and testimony of the early believers in the church. You know, as we come to a time of response this morning, uh, I want us to reflect on this idea of light, this picture that Jesus gives, this last image that he casts and leaves for people ringing in their minds as he disappears from his public ministry. And here's what I want to reflect upon. First of all, if you're not here and you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to invite you to place your faith and your trust in him so that you can become a son or a daughter of light, that you can have his light living within you to guide you through the world, through decisions, through situations that you're going to encounter. You will have his light to show you the path and show you how you can honor him and serve him in that. But believer, I say to us this morning, and I ask in a way of of reflection and inventory for us, is your light shining in the darkness? Can people see the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life? You know, I liken it this way. If you were to wear a t-shirt tomorrow that says, I'm a Christian, would people be surprised? Would they look at you and laugh or say, wow, I didn't know that? I hope and pray that wouldn't be the response to that question. But maybe you're here this morning and you would acknowledge and say, you know what, I don't know that people would would totally question whether or not I'm a Christian, but you know what, I kind of have hid my light. Jesus talked about that, that you don't take a light and light it and then put it under a basket or hide it so that people can't see it. When you light a light, you put it up in a prominent place. You let it shine so people can see that light. And you may be here and say, you know what? I've kind of allowed darkness. I've allowed some sin patterns, some things in my life, or, or just fear of other people to kind of maybe, you know, shade my light a little bit and, and kind of cover it. And, I, and I, I've told myself I'm protecting it from the wind and stuff, but you know what, really? I've been kind of afraid to let it shine because of what people may think or what they may say or, or what I may have to give up as a result of following Christ. You may have developed what I call and what I built the sermon title of the Uh, this morning, a Lightville mentality. You know, I'm afraid that many believers have mistakenly believed that what God has called us to is to live together in little light huddles, light villages, or light cities, where we all get together and we shine our lights as a collective group. We get together and go, wow, your light is so pretty. Why, look at that blue light over there. Look how big his light is. And look, at, look how pretty her light is. And we like to get together with other believers. And, and we, we let our lights shine. And we kind of develop this attitude of us for and no more. You know, we're happy with us. We're content. We like being in the light together. So much so that we never go out into the darkness to rescue those who are trapped in darkness. 
You know, and God never called us to live in these little light cities, these little light villes where we're separated and segregated from the world that's lost and fumbling around in darkness all around us at every turn. God has called us to take our lights to those people. What if we all lived in little Christian utopias, little Christian bubbles, where we wore our Christian clothing and we ate our Christian food and we drank our Christian coffee from our coffee shops called Hebrews? <laughs> How cute. Hebrews. And, and we eat our Christian breath mints. I mean, does your breath smell better with a Christian breath mint over a secular breath mint? I'm more godly. <sighs> Can you smell? You know, Christian bottled water. Are we more refreshed from our Christian bottled water? And we live in our Christian neighborhoods and, and, and we watch our Christian television and listen to our Christian radio. And we get in this little bubble where we're fine and we're happy and we're content with everything Christian. And the world around us is dying and going to hell. And we don't seem to care. Church, Jesus calls us to care. He tells us that we are his light, the sons of light. And you know what we're to do? We're to go into the darkness and let our lights shine so that people can see it, so they're drawn to it, and so we can lead them into the light of Christ that they might have a relationship with him as well. Jesus has called us to carry our lights into the darkness. And I hope and pray that for some of you right now, you're having the duh moment where the proverbial light bulb's coming on and you're realizing, man, that's why God has me in my workplace. That's why God has placed me in my neighborhood. That's why God has me in certain relationships with certain people. I'm the light. I'm the one that's supposed to be shining in the darkness. I get it now. And I hope you get it because that is what God has called you to that is the task and the mission that he set before you. That when you have his light, you are to go and share it with others. So for our time of prayer this morning, I want us to pray. Maybe right where you are, maybe you want to come to the altar and spend some time here. But to basically, very uh, simply, as our kids sang for us this morning, I want our collective prayer to be, God, help this little light of mine shine brightly for you. Let's pray.